Amen, you may be seated. You know, um, one of the really cool things about genealogy research is that, um, you know, it's not just the list of names that's part of your history, it's, it's kind of the stories that go along with it. You know, it's just listening to the stories of our past and, and knowing who these people were and, and what they accomplished and, and what they went through. And I remember when I was in third grade, I was doing a Arkansas, I was part of a, an Arkansas history school play and they were celebrating famous people who were from Arkansas and I got chosen to be Johnny Cash. And I went home and I said, mom, who's Johnny Cash and why do I have to be him? And she said, uh, he's a famous singer, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, she said, and oh, by the way, you're related to him. And, uh, and I was like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. And I went through the play and, and I went through the rest of my life not really thinking about it. And, and to be honest with you, I, I kind of thought that that was always just kind of a, a family legend. You know, I never really gave it a whole lot of serious thought. I never really thought it was true or anything. But my aunt, who's actually here today, by the way, um, she likes to do genealogy research. And, uh, and so what was it? About a year ago or so, we were talking about it. And I was like, are we really related to Donnie Cash? Or is that just something we kind of made up? And, uh, and she said, oh, no, no, it's absolutely true. I think, what was it? It was my, it was, uh, it was my grandfather's mother, who was his dad's sister, or something like that. I'm not in the will, okay? So, so uh, you have to walk really far down that line to get there, but, uh, but I am related. And, and a couple of years ago, you may remember a biopic came out about him. I think it starred uh, Joaquin Phoenix, and it was a movie about him and all of his struggles. And, and I'll be honest with you, I kind of connected to that movie more so than I do with other movies because I knew that the real person that this actor is portraying was somebody that I share a common heritage with. And I really connected to that story more so than I would like if you went and saw the Avengers at the movie or something like that. You know, I like to say I'm related to Captain America, but I know you guys can see the resemblance. But, but anyway, um, that wasn't a joke. Anyway, so, <laughs> the, um, but, but I did connect to that a lot more because this was someone I shared a common heritage with. And I think sadly for most Christians, the Christmas story really begins at Matthew chapter one, verse 18, because that's where most of our Christmas readings begin. But if you look, there's actually 17 verses that come before that. And I know that genealogies are not exactly the greatest devotional material in the world. I doubt many of you went to uh, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles this morning for your uh, quiet time. But at the same time, they are important. They are inspired. And every word of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction, for instruction in righteousness. And therefore, Matthew uh, did, under the inspiration of God, put these verses here for a reason in presenting the history of the kingdom and writing so that we will know what life in the kingdom is and what our common heritage is. Understand that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not only Israel's heritage, this is your heritage. This is our shared story with the saints of all history. This is redemption history. This is redemptive um, uh, history, like I said. And so when you look at this genealogy, the question we want to ask is, is that every name in this, in this genealogy has a story. 
Every name in this genealogy is a link in that common heritage for better and oftentimes, and really more often than not, for worse. And they are also a link in the redemptive history of Israel as well. And as I said, as our history, as redeemed children of God, joint heirs with Christ, adopted by the Father, this is our history also. And every one of these names is significant. And we're not gonna take the time to tell you every story that goes with his names. We're not gonna do that. But what we do wanna do is we wanna look and say what stands out. And I think that just about every pastor, every preacher who's ever preached this, every commentator down to the one that I have read has noted that one thing that really stands out about Matthew's genealogy is that he includes four women. Now, that is very unusual for this time, very unusual. It's not unheard of. In fact, if you go to other genealogies in the scripture, like for example, uh, I think it's... um, I think it's Genesis uh, chapter five. You'll find some in Chronicles. There are women included. And if you go to the ascension records of all the kings of Judah in the book of first Kings and second Kings especially, you will always find their mothers represented. So it's not as uncommon as you might think. The question is not, why did Matthew include women? I don't think. But the question is, why did Matthew include these women? And I think that's the real question. And they are, in verse three, we see the story of Judah and Tamar. In verse five, we see Salmon and Rahab. And then we see Boaz and Ruth, also in verse five. And then we'll see David. And, and, and in the original text, Bathsheba is not named. And, and I think there's a reason for that, but we're not gonna get to that till next week. So even though it's not as uncommon as people make it out to be, A lot of people ask, why does Matthew include these women? And the most common answer is that Matthew is including these women because he is showing us that Jesus has come for all the nations, not just Israel. I don't know about that. And here's the reason why. Because number one, we can't decisively prove that all of these women are not Jews. We can for two of them. But Tamar, we're not sure. Bathsheba, we're not sure. We assume because her husband was a Hittite, but we don't know. And the second thing is, is that Matthew is gonna make that very clear with the coming of the wise men in Matthew chapter two. So if he's gonna make that very clear in Matthew chapter two, why would he vaguely point to that in Matthew chapter one? So it could be. Truth is, Matthew doesn't tell us. But These women did walk into salvation history and God chose to tell their stories. And I think what we really wanna ask ourselves is, is what does God teach through the stories of these women? And how does that fit into his kingdom purpose of writing this this book, writing this gospel How does that instruct us? You know, last week we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham and the promises given to David. And now we're gonna ask the question is, how do we come into that promise? How do we lay hold of that promise? How do we become disciples of Jesus Christ? 
Two of these women, Tamar and Rahab, were, were not supposed to be a part of the kingdom at all. They were, they were, for all practical purposes, were supposed to be killed, and yet they came into the kingdom. What does that teach us? What does that show us? And what can we learn from them? So we're gonna look at Tamar and Rahab this morning and ask ourselves, how do we lay hold of the promise of Jesus, the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham and to David. And we're gonna see in order to lay hold of those promises, we must enter into the kingdom of Christ. If we want to be in that promise, we must lay hold of it by entering into the kingdom. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we enter into the kingdom of Christ? We're gonna see a couple things through their story. Number one, through the story of Tamar, we see that we must enter into the kingdom of Christ. In order to do that, we must repent. We must repent. Tamar and Judah's story is gonna take us all the way back to Genesis. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. And we're gonna look at the story really of Judah is, is what we're really concerned with here. The story of Judah, and we come across him three times in the book of Genesis. We come across him in Genesis 37, we come across him in Genesis 38, and we see him again in Genesis 44. And just a little background, last week, you know, we talked about Abraham, right? And Abraham had the promised son who was Isaac. And then Isaac had a son. He actually had two sons, but for the purpose of redemption, he had one son. And that son was Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. Uh, Stephan, go ahead and name them for us. No? Okay. Well, but, but in the story of Genesis, he did have one particular son, and you all know him because he had a coat of many colors, and his name was Joseph, right? And you can remember that because in English, they're in alphabetical order. Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? But jo uh, Jacob actually had 12 sons, and of those sons, Judah was one of those sons. And, and of all the brothers we see in the book of Genesis, even though Joseph is the main character, Judah is the most significant. And here's why because Judah is going to go through the biggest change of all the other brothers. We're gonna see Judah do a complete 180 uh, in his character and in his development as a child of God. And so look at his character in, in Genesis 37, and you might wanna put your ribbon in Genesis 44. The first time we see Genesis 37, we see, we see Judah is, uh, is one of the 12 brothers and Joseph comes with this, with this technicolor dream coat and he walks out to the brothers and he's probably out there to kind of spy on them for dad. He was, he was kind of a daddy's boy, you know, and he was the favorite and all the other brothers didn't like him and all of this. And, and the brothers were extremely jealous and in a fit of rage, they decided that they are going to kill him. Now, Reuben steps in and he says, no, guys, let's not kill him. But don't think he did that for any love of Judah. No, he's got his own problems with dad and he's basically trying to get back into the inheritance. That's all he cares about. He doesn't care about Joseph. He just wants the money, 
right? And so he goes away and they throw him into a cistern, which is a big hole dug into the ground and they're all eating. And I want you to see, this is Judah. Watch Judah's character here in Genesis 37, 26 and 27. Judah says to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? In other words, guys, if we kill Joseph, what's really in it for us? We don't really get anything out of this. We got a perfectly good money situation here. We got a perfectly good situation. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him for he is our brother, our own flesh and his brothers listen to him. In other words, why should we kill our brother? Guys, we can make a little cha-ching off of this. We can make some money off of this. And they sell Joseph to a caravan for the going rate of a slave at this time. Earlier in Genesis 34, the brothers committed genocide of an entire village to get vengeance on for their sister. There's no reason to believe that Judah was not part of that. So he is cruel, he is wicked, he is selfish, he is jealous, and in Genesis 37, to put it in modern terms, he becomes a human trafficker. He sells his brother into slavery. That's the first time we meet Judah. Nice guy, huh? Boy, isn't this somebody you want as a brother? With friends like this who needs enemies, right? And yet, when we go to Genesis 44, on the other hand, we see something different. And again, I'm not gonna go through the whole story. Joseph is now uh, the prop, pretty much the most powerful man in the, Egypt, in, in the kingdom of Egypt. He's the vizier is what we know that position from history. And he has put the brothers through some tests to kind of test their characters and stuff like that. They don't recognize that they're talking to Joseph. They just see an Egyptian prince here who they're in trouble with. And Joseph is going to take the youngest son, Benjamin, who's actually his full brother, and he is gonna put him into slavery. And remember, when we first met Judah, he wanted to sell his brother into slavery. And yet now in Genesis 44, verse 32, look what Judah says. He says, for your servant, talking about himself, is a pledge of safety for the boy to my father. If I do not bring him back to you, I shall bear the blame. Watch this in verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a slave to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. You see, the very one who sold his first brother into slavery is now becoming to offering to become a slave for the sake and salvation of his second brother, who, by the way, was also daddy's favorite. And so, massive character change, completely opposite. What happened? Tamar. Tamar happened. And that's where we're gonna see his conversion in Genesis 38. In Genesis 38. And again, I won't give you the whole story, but Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. The son that she's married to dies. And so back according to the customs of the day, uh, his brother, Judah's uh, second son, was to go and basically marry Tamar in order to raise up a child for the name of the first brother, but he refuses to do so and basically takes advantage of Tamar. And therefore God out of displeasure kills him as well. 
And Judah promises to give Tamar his youngest son, who is not of age yet, but he says, basically, go to your father's house and live there, and when my next son is of age, I will let you have him. Basically, Judah's just throwing her away. That's all he's doing. He has no intention of giving his youngest son to Tamar. He's throwing her away. And so, as time goes by, though, Tamar, what she does is she hears that Judah is in town, and so she dresses up like a harlot, and she meets him in the city, and she brings him to basically perform a transaction of a harlot. And part of that transaction action is, is that what will you give me for doing this? And Judah offers a goat, but he doesn't have it with him, and so he leaves basically his driver's license as collateral. Okay, he leaves a signet ring, he leaves a cord, and he leaves his staff. And though she takes that, she goes back to her house, he actually comes with the goat, but she's nowhere to be found, so he just gets his license remade, and you know, five bucks, no big deal. Well, later on, he discovers that Tamar is pregnant, and he brings her out. He says, oh, the moral outrage How dare she disrespect me like this? And and he is bringing her out to be executed, to be burned alive. And she says, the man who impregnated me is the man who owns this. And she handed his driver's license over to him. Judah was the man. And something happens right then in Judah's heart. In verse In verse 24 of Genesis Genesis 38, look what Judah says. He says, excuse me, verse 26, I'm sorry, Mark. Judah recognized them and said, watch this, she is more righteous than I. You see, for the first time in Judah's life, He comes face to face with his own depravity. He comes face to face with his own sin. He realizes that I am the one to blame. I threw her away and I made all these promises to her that I did not intend to keep. And now she has proven that in this ordeal, in this very sin, even though all my moral outrage could not hide the fact that I am the guilty one. I am the sinner. I am the one to blame. And all the moral outrage in the world can't hide that from anyone. He comes to the end. He comes face to face with his own sinful heart. Comes to the end of himself. And all he can say is she is more righteous than me. I'm a dog. I'm a sinner. And if she deserves to die in this transaction, then how much more must I? You see, that's what Jesus says when he says the very first words of his message of preaching. And and we have this in in Mark chapter one, verse 15. He says that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. 
Turn from your sins. Recognize the end of yourself. Understand that all of our self-righteousness, all of our, all of our moral positioning and posturing and all of our moral outrage is nothing but to cover up the fact that you and I are fully depraved, we are fully sinners, and at best, we are putting Band-Aids on measles. That's all we're doing when we try to cover this up, we need to come to the end of ourselves. My only hope, those who recognize that even though I thought I was rich, even though I thought I was rich in righteousness and had everything together, the truth is I am a sinner through and through and through. And my only hope of righteousness is the righteousness of Christ to cover me. That is my only hope. Oh, beloved, have you come to the recognition of your own sinfulness? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to recognize that any notions of self-righteousness you have are delusions? That they are not real? That our best righteousness is as filthy rags before God? Can you imagine walking up to a mansion? I mean, I mean, just, I mean, name your favorite actor, right? Don Knotts. Let, let's walk up to Don Knotts' house, knock on his door, and he says, why should I let you in? And we have a bunch of nasty, bloody, pussy, medical rags, filthy rags, which is what that's talking about. And you say, well, well, Mr. Knotts, you should let me in because I brought you these. And yet that's what you're trying to do to God when you try to enter into heaven on your own righteousness. It's never going to work. He will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. It's about whether or not you know Christ have you come to recognize your own sinfulness, your own depravity? Have you recognized that you're a sinner? This is the first part of the gospel message. So many are trying to remove repentance from the gospel today. They're trying to make it some kind of easy believism that all you gotta do is say a prayer, walk an aisle and, and repeat after me and hallelujah, you're saved. No, Jesus says repent, turn from your sins. Come to the end of yourself and recognize that all of your righteousness, everything you're trusting in is lying to you and it's sending you to destruction, to an eternal hell, always dying, never dead. Will you turn? But you see, Jesus didn't stop there. That's the negative side of the coin. In order to enter in the kingdom of God, we must repent. Yes, that's the negative side of the coin. But what's the positive side? What must I go from here? And Matthew provides us with that next clue, with the next woman that he presents, and that is the story of Rahab. Do you remember the story of Rahab? It's gonna take us a little into the Old Testament, about 400 years, in fact, actually closer to about 500 years at this point. In Joshua chapter two, by the way, if I say judges, just assume Joshua, I've been doing that all week. So, but judges, see, I just did it. Joshua chapter two, and we find that in order to enter the kingdom of Christ, we must repent, yes, but we must also believe. We must also 
believe. And that's what we're gonna see in the story of Rahab. And that's why Matthew, I believe, is including Rahab's story here. And again, just a little background, very quickly. Israel has been, they've come out of Egypt under Moses. They sinned by refusing to go into the promised land. And so an entire generation of Israelites have died in the wilderness. And now there is a new generation who is about to go into the promised land. And Joshua, learning from the previous mistakes, he doesn't send 12 spies this time. He only sends two. And these two go to spy out Jericho. And there's something to note here that while there, they come to the house of Rahab, who is a harlot. Now, Tamar pretended to be a harlot. Rahab is a harlot. This is her occupation. Rahab actually was one. The wall of Jericho was a heavily fortified wall. And, uh, and, and by the way, when, when, I, when I was a kid and I thought of the wall of Jericho, I always thought veggie tales, you know? where it's just kind of a big stand-up wall and the, and the little peas are up top going, keep walking, but you won't, you know. And, and I thought that there was just rooms inside the wall, kind of like apartment high-rises today. But that's not actually what it was. In fact, if you, I got a picture up here. Uh, this is what ancient Jericho would have looked like. And you see, the wall is actually made of two walls, right? And it's, and it's, and it's on a hill. So you got one wall here and you got the second wall there. Okay, and it's basically impenetrable. Uh, it was actually a fascinating archaeological find. But what you'll notice is that in the center, notice how there's kind of houses between the two walls. That is what we might refer to as the red light district. And that is where Rahab lived. Okay, uh, that, that, when it says that she lived in the wall, that's what they're talking about. She lives in that section and she actually lives right next to the wall. And that's where these spies are staying. And word comes to the king of Jericho that spies are, 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 are spying out our town from Israel and he comes to look for them. Now I want you to notice Joshua chapter two, verses three through four. They go to Rahab and they say, bring out the men who have come to you, entered your house for they have come to search out all the land but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she says, yes, they were here, but they went. If you run quick, you can find them. She basically sent them on a wild goose chase. Why did she do that? Why would she do something like that? I mean, in her mind, these two spies are spying out for people who are coming to kill her. So why would she do something like this? I um, notice what she says in verses 10 through 13. That's where we're gonna camp out. In 10 through 13, she's telling the men why she did this. She says, for we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of Amorites and beyond the Jordan and Sion and Og and were devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Why did Rahab do this? Notice some things about what she just said. Number one, she heard about the Lord's redemption. She heard the Lord's salvation. She heard the story. She heard everything that the Lord had done. She heard the stories of Egypt, how God of Israel had annihilated the most powerful kingdom on earth to save his people. 
And she had heard all of these stories as everyone else did. It was the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament and, and really the second greatest act of redemption in the entire Bible, second only to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amazing act of redemption. And, and she heard all about this, but she not only heard about it, she understood what it meant. She understood the significance. She understood what this meant for her. And as soon as all the residents of Canaan, including her, heard everything that God was doing to redeem Israel, it says their hearts melted. Their hearts became like soft butter, just melted within them. One way to understand that is that they, they lost their courage. They became weak. They started to recognize their own weakness. They started to recognize that if the God of Israel, if Yahweh could destroy the most powerful kingdom on earth to save his people and his people are coming here, then we understand what that means for us. We understand what is about to happen. She heard all about this. Ruth came to, Ruth, Rahab came to understand her own weakness and she came to understand her inability to save herself. She came to understand that she is weak and that this God who had destroyed Egypt just, just demolished the most powerful army on earth. This God who did that to save his people, this God is coming for me. And it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. She understood this. Left to herself, she was going to die, perish in the fires of Jericho. And what's more, that's exactly what should have happened that's exactly what was scheduled for her future. That's what she was destined to. It's one thing to recognize that Israel's God was a powerful God who destroyed Egypt. It's quite another thing to know that that God is coming for you. There was nowhere to hide. She recognized her weakness. She knew she couldn't save herself, but she confessed her faith. Look in the rest of verse 11. It says, for Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. She came to understand that God is God and there is no other. Yahweh, your God, he is God. And not only this, he is the only God. Look what she says, in the heavens above or the earth beneath. What do you think the Canaanites worshiped? They worship the heavens above and the earth beneath. And Rahab says, no, none of those things are God. God is God. This is actually huge. She is denying all the pagan gods of her culture. And she says, there is nothing in them that can save my life. There is nothing in them that can give me life. Yahweh is God alone. He is Lord over all. And there is no other beside him. And there is no other God who will provide salvation. She understands that God is powerful enough to deliver Israel from the greatest empire on earth and beloved. And coming to understand that, she also comes to understand that this God is powerful enough to deliver me. And that's what she does in verse 12. Please then swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also would deal kindly with my father's house. 
She appeals to grace. She appeals to mercy. She appeals to the mercy of the Lord. You see, Rahab understands she is in the path of destruction. She knows her time has come. Her sin has been found out and there is nothing she can do, but she knows Yahweh is God over all the heavens and all the earth and she knows he is powerful enough to deliver her and she stretches out her arms and pleads for mercy. That's all she can do. That's all there is. And the men as representatives of God, they promised to do just that. And of course, you know the rest of the story. Israel marches along the wall. They blow their horns and the walls fall down. It's a total disaster. We still have the ruins of this disaster. And, and what's so interesting about them is that usually when an army attacks a, a, a city, the wall, they push the walls inward, right? And yet Jericho at this time, the archeological finds showed that the walls actually fell outward. Except for this section right here. This section right here. That's the only section left standing from Jericho's wall from this time. And guess what? It's about the size of a house. That's Rahab's house, what's left of it. That's Rahab's house. And you see, Rahab appealed to the grace of God and she found that his grace was more than sufficient. And even though the rest of the walls fell down around her, her world came crumbling down and yet her house stood because she placed her faith in the God of Israel. And she became part of the kingdom because she placed her faith in the salvation of Yahweh. Beloved, yes, you must repent from your sin, you must turn from your sin, but you also must respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith. You must respond to him. You must, and notice how applicable all of this is to the response that God requires of the gospel. We must hear the gospel, the story that Jesus came to this earth, lived in absolute obedience and righteousness before God, earning the righteousness that you and I need. And then he died on the cross in full payment for our sin in order to deliver us, not from the political slavery of Egypt, but from the spiritual slavery of our sin. He came to deliver us from the greatest enemy of all of which we will all face if we do not know Jesus Christ. Romans chapter five, verses six and eight. Oh, hear this, beloved. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might even dare to die. But God shows his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have you heard that story? Have you listened to that story? And have you understood the significance of that story? Have you understood that just as Paul says right there, that while we were still weak, do you understand that in your sin, you are weak and unable to affect anything for your own salvation? 
Do you understand that you are completely helpless and you have nothing to bring to the table of God except your own sin? And that no amount of righteousness that you think you have is gonna be enough to save your soul. You owe an eternal, absolute, and perfect debt to God. And you are not eternal, you are not absolute, and you are not perfect. But one who is all of those things gave his life for you so that you could come to the table of God, not upon your merits, but upon his And that's the gospel. We need to understand the significance that we have nothing to bring to the table. Beloved, have I come to this place? Have I come to the place? Have I come to this point? If Christ has dealt with me according to my sins, then why? I I would die. If Christ dealt with me according to my own righteousness, then all I have to expect is the fires of Jericho. All I have to expect is the destruction of God. And he's coming for me. And it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But praise the Lord, he does not deal with us according to our sins, but he deals with us according to the salvation that he himself has provided in Jesus Christ. He's given it all to us. Everything that we need. Why in the world would you refuse that? Why would you settle for little plastic pieces of junk when you can have the authentic and fine pearls of Christ's righteousness laid upon your neck? Why would you settle for fool's gold, pyrite, when you could have the pure gold of the righteousness of Christ put upon your fingers? Why would you settle for anything less than Jesus Christ and him crucified? Risen and coming again. Do you understand the significance of that? Acts chapter two, verse 37, when, when the Jews heard the the gospel of Christ, they were, it says that they were pierced to the heart. And to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, they said, what shall we do? Beloved, have you been pierced to the heart? Have you come to a point to where you have been pierced down to the very depths of your soul and had nothing else to cry out except what shall I do? Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. We confess our faith, Romans chapter 10, verses nine and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It goes on to say, for with the heart, a person believes with your whole self, your whole inner person. Uh, A person believes resulting in righteousness And with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Appeal to grace and you will find that God's grace is sufficient for you. And you will enter the kingdom, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Beloved, that calling on the name of the Lord is not just a prayer 
is as if I said I had to call on all my experience to fix this problem with my car today or something. In other words, it's, it's total dependence. Whoever depends, who places their trust and faith and dependence on Christ alone is the one who will be saved. And that's why Jesus says in Mark 15, the first, word of, first words of the gospel, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that's what Matthew is showing us in these stories. He's calling our attention to these stories. He's mentioned the hope that Christ is the fulfillment of both the promises of Abraham and David. And now he's telling us by invoking these stories, calling these stories to our attention, he's telling us how we can have those promises. In the story of Tamar, we see repentance. In the story of Rahab, we see faith. Repent and believe in the gospel. Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? Have you come to that place where you were cut to the heart and you can only appeal to the mercy of Jesus Christ? That's the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, have you done that in your life? I'm not asking if you've gone to church your whole life. I'm not asking if you've walked an aisle. I'm not asking if you've prayed a prayer. I'm asking, have you come to the end of yourself and recognize that you can no longer depend upon yourself or anything else for salvation, that you must place your faith and hope in Christ alone and in all of his work that he has accomplished for you? Have you come to that point? And if not, I would love to talk to you. Brother Art, Brother Roy, John, Rob, many women, Melissa, Joe, uh, Vanita, Wanda, any, uh, lots of godly men, godly women in this room would love to talk to you. We will skip lunch even. And you know what, you know Baptists like to eat. We will skip lunch if it means we can bring you into the kingdom with us. Will you be saved today? Will you know Christ? Father, we thank you for these wonderful stories you gave us, stories that Paul tells us are there for our instruction, for our example, but Lord, also for the understanding that they are all pointing us to one great story, the story of Jesus Christ. Every story in the Old Testament, every book in the Old Testament, every theme, every picture, everything we have is pointing us to one need, and it is our need of a Savior, Father, we see the sins of the fathers. We see the, we see the inability of the prophets to turn the nation. We see the nations that go over and over and over again to, to, to apostasy and destruction. And Lord, that's exactly what we will do if you were not powerful enough to deliver us from our sin. But you are and you have. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who does not know Christ and the real gift of salvation, and may this morning be the morning you draw them to yourself. If that's your need this morning, I ask that you will come. Maybe you have another need. Maybe you have been saved, but you have begun depending on other things. You've begun chasing other idols. 
You've become conceited in your own self-righteousness and you know you need to repent. Whatever it is, I invite you to come today. Let's stand and just, I ask you just to bow your heads for a few moments and reflect upon the things you've heard from the word. And if you have a need this morning, I do invite you to come. I would love to talk to you. Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to understand that there is nothing in you deserving of salvation, but that Christ has given everything you need for the forgiveness of sin and new life in the kingdom? If you haven't come to that realization, I'd love to talk to you today. Won't embarrass you. Just have you sit down. We'll wait until everyone's gone and then we'll have just a private conversation. I'll tell you how you can know Christ for real. Whatever your need is, 